You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to try to cover this whole chapter this morning, uh, which is an ambitious task, but I think we can do it, and I think we will benefit uh, from it. Um, but while you're finding that Nehemiah chapter 4, I wanted to share uh, why I named the sermon what I did and share a quote with you uh, from a poem that has been, been come to know, be known as Oliver's Advice. Or I've seen it by a few other names, but uh, it's, a, it's a poem that was written by a man named William Blackner, uh, where he was trying to summarize the message that this man Oliver Cromwell had given to his troops back in the uh, 17th century as they came to invade Ireland and they had a battle in front of them. They were about to even, they think, cross a river as he was giving this advice and to head into battle again. And this man, William Blackner, was obviously not there. He came way later, but legend had grown. But they think there's seeds of truth to what uh, Oliver Cromwell said to his troops that day. And the refrain of the poem, you can go read it yourself if you want to. It's called Oliver's Advice. But uh, the refrain of it goes like this, of what he said to his troops. He said, to put your trust in God, my boys, and keep your powder dry. That's what he said, to put your trust in God, my boys, and keep your powder dry. And what he was trying to do, if that's accurate or not, the sentiment I think we can, can resonate with and understand it. It's, it's what some people have tried to say. He was combining piety and practicality. He was trying for these young men who were going into battle to give them courage and confidence that God would oversee this battle, that, that, that he would hopefully in their, in their experience show favor to them and give victory to them. He wanted them to have a trust in God uh, to protect them and give them victory. But he also wanted them to have a reminder that they were about to fight a battle, like that they were actually about to face off with other men who wanted to kill them, people who wanted to harm them. And he wanted them to be very practical down into the nuts and bolts and even down to their gunpowder as they're going across this river. Make sure you keep that dry so you can have it to fire your weapons so that you can be able to fight in the battle. And so he wanted to set their sights high and remember to trust in the Lord as they came in to fight. But he also wanted them to remember their own responsibility and to be smart, to be wise, to be intentional about how they were going to go about this battle and this combat that they were entering into. And as we look at the story, this part we're going to look at of Nehemiah this morning, Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to see that there's similar language even that Nehemiah tells his people as opposition is going to mount against them and threats are going to be made against them and even harm seems like it's going to come to them. And he's trying to get them ready for it. He's trying to get them uh, to be organized and to have strategy. He's also pointing their sights upward to remember the greatness of their God and to remember that he will fight for them. But he's trying to do both. And as we read this story, I want us to see, some of us might not like history. Some of us may think, this happened thousands of years ago. It's about a city halfway around the world, people in a very different context. Why does this matter to me? And it, we may not like history, but the history that is in the Word of God is for us. It's for our instruction. We, we aren't preparing to build a wall around Winona Lake or around Warsaw. But this text is, I think, in the Word of God to prepare us for the battles that we do face and that we will face spiritually in our lives. So I want us to hear it for us, to see its relevance for us as God's people who live in Winona Lake in 2018. And so uh, we're going to look at this story. We're going to back up, make sure we know where we are in the story of Nehemiah. Then we're going to drop into chapter 4 itself and try to cover the whole ground. But what, how I would summarize the emphasis of this text and what I want us to see today, I, I'd say it this way is that each of us to pre is to press on in working for the Lord, even when opposition mounts against us. That we are to press on in working for the Lord, even when opposition mounts against us. And we're going to get our bearings with this book. We're going to go through this text. But I'm going to have four phrases that you can listen for that will help us see the story, big picture, and what's going on in this text itself. And as we think of our need to press on in working for God, even when opposition comes against us, I'll, I'll say three things that we are to not do and one that we are to do. So the three things we're not to do is, is the, I'd say it this way, don't be surprised by spiritual opposition. Don't be sidetracked by spiritual opposition. And don't be scared of spiritual opposition. And the last one, the one I would say positively that we see in this text, is to be smart 
as you face spiritual opposition, to, to keep your powder dry, to actually know what you're doing and be intentional about how you face spiritual opposition. I know not all of you have been here the last several weeks, and so the, the first point, that, that idea of not being surprised by spiritual opposition, I get that from the book of Nehemiah as a whole, and I'll show you a few places we see that even in what we've covered the last few weeks. But the first thing I want us to make sure, even as we start this sermon and look at this text, is that we're not surprised by spiritual opposition, that we know it's coming. We know it's actually here and present now, even in this room and in our lives in general. There is spiritual opposition in our lives. And if you have been here the last few weeks, you've known and you've seen that in the story of Nehemiah, opposition is laced throughout it from the get-go. And this, what we see this week, is not going to be the end of it. It's going to continue as they keep trying to rebuild this wall of Jerusalem, the wall around Jerusalem. And what has happened where we're in the story is a big picture of the Bible. God's people had lived in the promised land for a long time. And Jerusalem had been their hub. It's where the temple was. It was their capital city. It's where their kings would rule from. But as they were disobedient and continued in that and not repenting, God eventually sent them into exile. He let them be overrun by enemies and sent out, spread out into surrounding areas under the thumb of other people and other rulers. But getting closer to Nehemiah's day and the story that we're in today, God had started to move in historical events and even in these powerful foreign kings to let his people start to come back to Jerusalem, to let them come back to the city and slowly trickle in and get back to life there. And there had been this rebuilding effort. You can read about it in Ezra where where there was this serious rebuilding effort that had started, but it had kind of stalled out. It, it, it had stalled out for various reasons, but one was because of opposition. And where we started in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is actually in the capital city of Susa, far away. He's the assistant, like the cupbearer, they called it, to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful king in the world at that point in time. And he heard about how life was in Jerusalem still. Even though God's people had started to be allowed to come back, he heard that they, we saw in verse 3 of chapter 1, he had heard that they were in trouble and shame. And he, so that we know from the get-go there was opposition against them in Jerusalem. The, he had heard about it even from far away, this opposition that was against God's people in Jerusalem, that they were in trouble and in shame. And it moved his heart. It broke his heart even far away to hear that his people were so, being so mistreated and taken advantage of and intimidated. And so God broke his heart for this and gave him a desire to go and to help rebuild the wall, to protect the city. And he, through praying to the Lord and then God moving the heart of that powerful king he worked for, he actually got permission from King Artaxerxes to go, to go to Jerusalem, to make that long trip and to to get anything that he needed to rebuild these walls. But if you were here, the second or third week we went through uh, the series in Nehemiah, you saw in chapter 2, as that started to come to fruition and permission was granted for him to go to Jerusalem, do you remember what Nehemiah did before he left? He asked for letters from King Artaxerxes to be able to prove to people when he went that, hey, I have the backing of King Artaxerxes. He told me we could do this. He commissioned me to go do this. And the question I would ask is, why did he do that? Why did he ask for those letters? It's because he knew more opposition was going to come. He knew he needed proof. He knew he needed to be able to show people, look, I know you're anti this. I know you're against us. But I have the backing of the most powerful king, the king who rules over this land. And he has sent me here. He knew opposition was going to come. He wasn't surprised by it when it started to actually happen when he got to Jerusalem. We saw in chapter 2, verse 10, these two guys, and we're going to see them again today, named Sanballat and Tobiah. They were local rulers and leaders in the area around Jerusalem. You see in verse 10 of chapter 2 that Nehemiah recorded that it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so as he got there, these leaders are angry. They're frustrated that that somebody's coming to finally try to do something, to try to build up this wall. And then we saw towards the end of chapter 2, another leader named Geshem the Arab gets added into the mix. And the three of them together, it says in verse 19 of chapter 2, they jeered at the Jews who were doing this work and they despised them. And so there was opposition from the get-go. Nehemiah anticipated it. He knew it was going to come against them. And when the text we're going to see today, it reaches a fever pitch. It, it comes full circle, and it, it's strong, and the, the opponents are in their face. They're aggressive. They're hostile. We're going to see that very clearly 
today. But I, I think Nehemiah, Nehemiah could have glossed over this opposition. He could have just gave you the high notes of how long it took them to build the wall, how great of a success it was. But he recorded this opposition, uh, even the ones we're going to read today, for, for readers like us. Like whether they came the next generation right behind them or whether they come thousands of years later. He recorded this opposition to the work of God because he wanted, I believe, and I think the Spirit inspired him to record this for us. He wanted us to be ready for the opposition we'll face. And to, be, to have this naive idea that, that life's just going to be easy and there's, there's no opponents once I come to Jesus. He wanted to blow that out of the water and say, you are going to have opposition. You will till the day Christ returns. You'll have opposition. And the Holy Spirit has us in the word of God for us. Not just to inform us about the past and what happened to those people. But to prepare us for the future and what will happen to us. The opposition that we're going to face. And before we get into this text, I want to clarify a couple differences between their day and our day. The work of the people in Nehemiah's day that we're reading about this summer was primarily the building of a wall. The building of the wall around Jerusalem. It, it was a defensive maneuver. They wanted to protect themselves from enemies who might come to them, right? Who might seek to harm them. It was a defensive thing that they were building. Our work is not that, is it? The, the work that we're to press on and to continue on. We're not building a wall around our property here to keep enemies out. We're not doing that. Our work as the church, as followers of Jesus, is not even defensive to, to build structures, to hold people out. Our work is offensive. It's to go into enemy territory, to be on the move proactively, to go into enemy territory where Satan rules and where he holds people captive and to take the good news of Jesus to them. And like we sang, to shout, Jesus is your jubilee. Like you can come, you can be rescued and come to the side of Jesus. And so our work is different. It's not defensive. It's not building some structure. It is offensive and it's going into darkness and calling people to believe in Jesus. And to clarify our enemies as well, their enemies were flesh and blood human beings like Tobiah uh, and these men Sanballat and their armies and their people who were coming against them, who were verbally taunting them and who were aggressively coming after them and trying to intimidate them. Their enemies were flesh and blood human beings. Our enemies were taught in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. Our enemies, Paul, the apostle Paul says, are, are not flesh and blood, it's spiritual powers the forces of darkness he says this he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood uh, or against we wrestle against the rulers he calls them authorities cosmic powers that rule over this present age spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that's ephesians 6 paul's saying that's who our enemy is and so as we look about our town as we look about our county or our world our enemies are not fellow human beings our enemies are the spiritual beings behind them that are ruling over them, that are holding them captive. And we may at times experience opposition from human beings, but if we are honest, can we be honest with each other in Winona Lake and Warsaw and surrounding towns? We often don't experience that. The opposition that we feel is not from a fellow human being, typically. It's, not, it's rare that if we're going to tell somebody about Jesus in our community that, that we're threatened or that we're scoffed at, or that we experience jeering and, and mocking. That, that does happen at times, but it's rare in our town. That's God's blessing and, and favor upon this area. But we have an enemy. We have an enemy. You have an enemy if you are a follower of Christ. And the, the enemies in Nehemiah's day, they were obvious. They were aggressive. They were hostile. They were in their face. They were mocking them. But our enemy... Satan and, and the spiritual forces, they are often quiet in our, cir our circumstances. They are reserved. They're lurking in the background. They, they like to be unseen. They like to be subtle. And it can tempt us to think that we don't have an enemy. It can tempt us to think we don't have opposition against us. Uh, but their desire is to keep us inactive. It's to keep us just going about our day-to-day -day life, not being offensive, not going to tell people about Christ, not seeing disciples made. And I was thinking about camouflage this week. There's a reason camouflage was invented, right? It's so that an enemy can be right in your presence and you don't even realize it. The fact that you don't see them, that you don't hear them, doesn't mean they're not there. 
that they, they capitalize on the element of surprise and you're feeling safe, you're feeling comfortable as if you're not opposed at all. And Satan is the same way with us. He likes to, to us to think he's not there, that he's not active, that he's not opposed to us. I like the movie The Usual Suspects, and there's a character in that movie at the end, played by Kevin Spacey, where he says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I think he's convinced many of us, even in this room, either that he doesn't exist or that he's not opposed to us, that he's not actively opposed us. But we each need to hear this sermon. We need to read this text we're about to read to know the opposition is real. To remember that we need a wartime mentality against our enemy, not a peacetime mentality where we can just coast through life. And so our enemy is real, and we're going to see that he is crafty uh, in this text today. We're going to read through the first part of Nehemiah chapter 4 finally now. We're going to read the first six verses here. And for to not be surprised by spiritual opposition, but to know it's real. Know it's against us. Know that these beings are aligned against us. We're also to not be sidetracked by them. Not be sidetracked from the work that God calls us to do. And we're going to see in these first six verses of Nehemiah chapter 4 that that's precisely what the enemies of God's people in Nehemiah's day were trying to do. They were trying to sidetrack them from the work of building, from the work of of building this wall so that they could be secure. And so I'm going to read this and we'll walk through it and see its relevance for us and and calling us to not be sidetracked from the work God calls us to. So follow along with me in Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. This part of the story starts this way. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burned ones at that. And Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. And this is Nehemiah recording his prayer. He says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Then he says, matter-of-factly, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I'm just trying to understand what took place here and the side-tracking efforts of God's enemy. I want to walk back through this because we see these two men again, don't we? Sanballat and Tobiah who've already been opposed to them even as Nehemiah arrived. They're opposing them with even stronger force now. And when they hear, like last week we went through chapter 3 and Pastor Larry uh, walked us through that text of how work had actually started to, to rebuild these walls and to shore up the gates and progress was starting to be made. Plans were being actually enacted and, and executed on. And what we see here is that as Sanballat hears about it and Tobiah too, they are enraged, angry and greatly enraged, verse 1 says. And that, that leads them to jeer at them, to mock them. And I would just say this as an aside, that that the enemies of God's people, when they see us planning, they're pretty fine with that. Like, they don't don't like that when they see us try to imagine things and try to make some plans. They don't mind that. But when we actually start to do stuff, when we actually start to open our mouth and talk to a lost person about Christ, when we actually start to, to move our feet or we send people across the world to another nation where people have never heard about Christ, when we actually start doing things, They get extra angry. They get extra motivated. They get in our face. They oppose us. They get hostile to us because they like us to stay inactive. They like us to stay just content. They like us to stay in our place and and keep to ourselves. But when we start doing, when we start building, doing the work of God, opposition increases. And what we see here, how they do it at first, is just verbal, isn't it? 
they, they start taunting them. They start mocking them. If you walk through here and see, there's various things that they're calling into question. That we, we see, in starting in verse uh, 2, that he calls them feeble. He, he questions them, their, their strength. He, he, it's like a mocking kind of slander type of tone to it, that, that they are feeble people, this, this nation that used to be so strong. They're so feeble. Like, they can't do this work. Like, who do they think that they are? They question their ability and their strength, saying, will they restore it for themselves? Kind of implying they, they're going to need help. Like, they don't, they're not capable of doing this themselves. Like, who in the world do they think that they are? They are so weak. They could never do this themselves they mock their spiritual motives or maybe even god himself as they ask like are they going to offer sacrifices like is that going to help them as they they try to build this wall it's not going to help them do this work they cast doubts on their endurance their ability to like press on in the work when they say that will they finish up in a day like saying you might be able to work for a day you do not have the strength and the stamina to do this whole work like you will fail you will bail on it you will give up and they imply that they don't even have the stuff that they need to do it. When they start to ask in verse 2 about the stones, they say, are they going to revive stones out of this heap of rubbish? Because like, remember, the wall had gotten torn down. Like Stones had been thrown various places, and, and they're implying that the, the stones were burned, like that they had burned out and weren't even useful anymore. Uh, to the building up and so they're saying you don't even have what you need like even if you wanted to even if you were strong enough you don't even have the materials to do it you cannot build this wall and this tobiah man then steps in verse three and he just mockingly says like foxes are not big i don't know if you've ever seen a fox i used to think they were huge but they are pretty small typically um but he he mocks them saying that if a little fox like climbs up on their wall that they're building it's just going to and they're mocking them in the presence of and their army, the army of Samaria. They're, they're mocking them publicly as God's people, saying all these things. And they're not even accurate. Like the stones were fine. They were spread out. They, they were spread out, but they hadn't been burned. Like they're, they're just saying stuff that's not even factually true, but they are running their mouths trying to intimidate God's people and distract them from the work that God has called them to do. Trying to get their minds off of the work to doubt themselves, to think, we can't do this, they're right. Like we, we cannot succeed. Like we are weak, we are smaller than we used to be. We, we have no king here with us. We, we, th- these things are true and they wanted them to be sidetracked. They wanted them to leave off the work of building this wall. And Nehemiah hears about it, doesn't he? It, it, he hears, it, you hear a prayer he offers up in response in verses 4 and 5. And rather than replying to the people who are taunting them, Nehemiah turns to God. He, he prays to God and cries out to him, calls out to him. And rather than just responding with anger and aggression at them, which Nehemiah, I think, did struggle with, uh, you read the rest of the story, uh, in this moment he turns to the Lord. As, as these taunts are coming against them. And because, I, I would note this, I almost uh, leaped over this, but did you notice what he says down in verse 5 as he's praying? It, he, he indicates that it wasn't just to the army that these men were saying these mocking things, but he says that, that these men have provoked God to anger in the presence of the builders. And so they had been saying these things. Maybe they marched their army by the walls of Jerusalem. They had been saying it not just for their army to hear, but they wanted the Jewish people to hear it. They wanted the people in Jerusalem to hear it and know how little they thought of them. And Nehemiah, it breaks his heart, and he's, I think, maybe nervous that the, the morale of the people is going to be broken. But he turns to God, and he calls God to act. He calls God to do something about it. And his prayer is strong. He says that he wants God to turn back their taunt on their own heads and to give them up, kind of like we were plundered as a people, give them up to that same judgment, God. Like, like It seems very wrong to us to pray things like that because we have heard Jesus say to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. We've heard our, our Lord say those things. But I, w- I would point you to Nehemiah's heart in this prayer. Look at, at verse 5 as he's praying. He's not just wanting vengeance and just anger and raging at these people. He says to God, he says strong things like, Do not cover their guilt and let not their sins be blotted out from your sight. But then listen to this. He says, For they have provoked you 
to anger and the presence of the builders. Like Nehemiah is appealing to the, how these people are, they are harming God. They are provoking God to anger. They're calling him into question, that they're mocking him ultimately. And Nehemiah's heart is not just to see Nehemiah's reputation good. And it's not just to see the, the people of Jerusalem, their reputation to be intact and them to be treated well. His reputation is that God would be honored. That God would be respected. And when he sees people not doing that, he cries out to God, change that. Like, make them bend their knee. Like, one way or other, make them stop harassing us and make them stop opposing you. That is the heart of Nehemiah in this prayer. And then I love how just matter-of-factly, after he prays, uh, the, the efforts to distract them from building the wall, he just says, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So their plan didn't work. That they're mocking of God's people. They're, they're even saying of lies and distorting truth to get God's people sidetracked. It did not work. They had, they had a mind to keep working, and they did. They, they built up this wall, and they start to make progress. And I, was, I would say to us as God's people living today that, that we still will experience at times taunting like this from our spiritual opponents it, it might not come from fellow human beings we might not experience that in our town very often but we will i believe it and i've experienced this maybe many of you have as well we will have our enemy satan or demons run their mouth to us and, and start saying things to distract us from the work god has called us to do and they will resort to anything they will they will belittle us to ourselves, that they will call into question our strength, our ability. Richard Sibbs, a famous uh, Puritan author, said this. He said that Satan, as he slanders Christ to us, so he slanders us to ourselves. Like there are times where Satan loves to just rack us with questions about our ability and how small we are, how, how unable, incapable we are of actually doing anything to make a dent in the, in the kingdom of darkness, to, to how unable we are and weak we are, how we maybe fumble over our words when we're going to go talk to somebody. Or we, we look at our own life and say, man, I am a sinner. Like I'm sinning in these particular ways. Like God could never use me in his work. God could never use me to save a soul to take the gospel to somebody. And Satan loves to just talk and talk and talk and distract us from the work God has called us to do. He, he tempts us to think that the church is a fragile thing, like this wall of Jerusalem. Like it's just going to crumble. There's no strength to it. There's no stability to it. Why would I want anybody to join it? Like Why would I ask anybody to come to Christ when there's so much messed up in the church? And he will do anything to get us off of our task of making disciples get us distracted and sidetracked from the work of making disciples. I've experienced it in my own life. I could talk to you more about it if you'd ever like to share um, personal stories about this. Like when I was a younger adult, I went through years of feeling sidetracked from what God was calling me to do to make disciples because I was just stuck in my own head. I was listening to accusations and to, to doubts from Satan about how weak I am and how sinful I am. And I was so focused on me trying to answer those questions i forgot there are people all around me dying and going to hell like there are people who don't know the lord and i'm just stuck in my own head listening to the accusations of my opponent and god wants us to keep working to not be sidetracked by our enemies and his taunts and his words that he will will bring to us so we're to not be sidetracked we see that nehemiah and his people resisted this initially this being sidetracked by their opponents but as we're going to continue on, we're going to see that, that the, the enemies, their opponents, moved from just talking to actually making plots of their own and actually starting to, to scheme and make threats, make physical threats against God's people, which is a, a ratcheted up step of opposition where, where they're going to make threats against God's people. And we're going to see not just that our enemy is crafty and clever, but that he is strong. He is. We have a strong opponent as God's people. And that, this is why I say, and we'll see from this text, is that we need to not be scared of spiritual opposition. Not be scared of spiritual opposition. I'm going to read verses 7 through 14, this part of the story. 
to follow along with me. So they've built the wall to half its height. They're, they're making progress, but they've heard these taunts. They've heard these words from Sanballat and Tobiah, and we're going to see how they ratchet up opposition because their plan is not working. Nehemiah records this. He says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. This is very Oliver Cromwell-esque. He says, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, this is the surrounding area around Jerusalem. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. Ourselves will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who had lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is a, a wonderful text. I, I wish I could have been there to see this take place and what the, the emotions and temptations would have been like in the swing of from fear to courage and confidence and from worry to, to boldness. But we see here, as we, as we look back through what we just read, we see that opposition is growing, isn't it? Uh, if, if God's enemies hate us actually starting to do things and to take action, they especially hate when progress starts to be made. When, when the wall starts actually being built and they can see the, the, the cracks being shored up and the gates closed. And in our case, when souls start to be saved. When people start to come to faith, you better believe God's opponents hate that and they're going to ratchet up opposition against us, against you when they see that taking place. And you can see that here because even in number, it seems like the opposition is growing. Originally, it was just Sanballat and Tobiah. But now there's these whole groups, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, that, that these other groups around Jerusalem, they start to see, whoa, like our control, our ability to intimidate this, these Jewish people in Jerusalem is slipping through our fingers. And they all start to oppose and to scheme and to plot against them, verse 8 says. We don't exactly know what they have in mind at first. It says that they plotted to come together and to fight against it, against the city and to cause confusion in it. And Nehemiah hears about this. In verse 9, I love just the simplicity of it. He was Oliver Cromwell long before Oliver Cromwell. Well, he says that we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And so he calls his people. It's not just Nehemiah praying. No, he, he leads all the people to pray to God. But they are not dumb enough to just pray and then leave the gates open. Like they pray and then they realize they may very well be the answer to their own prayers of protection. And so they set a guard. They have men ready at night to watch and they're, they're ready to fight if opposition comes. They keep their powder dry, so to speak. And, but fear starts to creep in. That's not the end of it. Verse 10 and what we read. We see that the people in Judah, like the area around Jerusalem, the, the Jewish people that are spread out even outside of Jerusalem, who maybe had sent their dad into the city to, to work and help rebuild the wall, or their son into the city to help rebuild the wall. They're starting to hear about this. They're, they're not dumb or deaf. Like they, they hear people and these plans being made to go attack Jerusalem, and they start believing the taunts. They start believing the threats are real, and they say that the strength of the people who are working is failing. There's too much rubble. We're not going to be able to rebuild the wall. They're, they're believing these taunts that have been said, and they're starting to let fear drive them. And they are saying, uh, in verse 11, you get a little bit more glimpse into the plans of the enemies. They, they say that we, in, <coughs> excuse me, it's indicated they're going to try a surprise attack. It says they'll not know when we're coming or see us till we're among them. 
But then it, it's clear they, they have intent to kill. It says, and we're going to kill them. And like they start to hear this. And you can imagine if you're a mom who sent your son into the city and you start to hear about this, you can imagine the droves of these people who start to come to Jerusalem, the Jewish people who live near, verse 12. And Nehemiah says 10 times, it's kind of like a way of saying they're coming over and over and over. They were coming into the city saying, you got to return to us. Like, come back. Like, stop being part of this thing that's going on in Jerusalem. You're going to get yourself killed. And it's for no use. You're never going to build the wall anyways. We're never going to succeed. Just come back home and at least we can be safe. And Nehemiah will have none of that. Like Nehemiah will have no people retreating in fear and cowering in fear when threats are made against them, even to take their life. It's probably what they were threatening, if you stop and think about it, probably would have been like a guerrilla warfare type of thing. Because remember, the, the enemies of God's people, they knew that in Susa, far away, was King Artaxerxes, right? They knew that Nehemiah had papers that say, we're allowed to rebuild this wall. Like, and so I don't think they had the audacity as the enemies of God's people to just come full scale. Like we are coming right through every one of these gates and we're taking you over. Because they knew that soon King Artaxerxes would send his troops to crush them. Because they're rebelling against what he said. But they did have the courage and the audacity to say, we're just going to pick our spots. And do these little sneak attacks where we're just going to come to the city and we're going to, wherever there's what we feel like is a weak spot on the wall, we're going to attack there. And we're going to kill some people, almost like terrorist type activity. Like we're going to come and attack, we're going to surprise them, we're going to kill them. And that strikes fear in people. Like is my kid going to be the one that, that gets attacked? Is my husband going to be slain there on the walls of Jerusalem for this effort I don't even think is going to succeed? And Nehemiah will have none of that. And he responds by organizing the people in the spot behind the wall, I think, where they could be seen. He says, like, where the lowest part is, like, he arranges them, he organizes them, and then he arms them. Like, he, he doesn't just respond with more prayer, although I'm sure he's praying. He, he responds with action by organizing these people and wanting the enemies to see, we are not backing down from you. Like, we are together, and we will fight against you if you come to us. And he organizes them, he arms them, and he gives them this like Braveheart-esque speech that just Nehemiah records of himself where he says to, to not be afraid of them. And then he, he doesn't just stop there. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He doesn't say, remember Artaxerxes, like he has our back. Remember who we are, like how strong we are. Like we are brave, we are unconquerable. Like he doesn't even point them to themselves. His courage that he wants to instill in them is to point them to God, to point him, them to the one, uh, to a man, to point them to the one who is great and awesome because they're not. And King Artaxerxes is, is wonderful in that he's supporting them, but he will not ultimately protect them from the opposition that they are going to face. This would have been a, like a motley crew of soldiers, if you want to call it that. I, this week, with it being July 4th, I was thinking about like revolutionary days and probably how in our nation the little militias that would have formed and whatnot, those were not intimidating groups of people. They were people like bakers and farmers and people like that who weren't military trained. And this would have been the same with these men who he assembles together like in their ragtag group and gives them wep the best weapons that they can come up with. But he's not pointing them to themselves and like to their strength and to their weaponry because those around them probably had better stuff and more trained people. But he is pointing them to their God. He is pointing them to the one who can speak the world into existence and who can slay an army with a word. He is pointing them to him for courage. And he does appeal to human motivations, doesn't he? He says to fight for your family, fight for your wives, fight for your kids, fight for your home. So he's not above appealing to human motives, but first he's pointing them to their God. Like Oliver Cromwell, he told them to keep their powder dry, but first he told them to put their trust in God, to have confidence that he would fight for them. And I want us to remember as God's people today, that Satan, much like these enemies were, were rationing up threats and wanting these people to be scared, Satan wants us to be scared of him. Like when he does pop out from camouflage or his demons, like they want us to be scared of them. They want us to be intimidated by them. And I think, honestly, some of us have never stopped to think about how truly strong they are. 
Like, we, we walk around this world thinking we're just in our own world. We, we don't even think about the invisible world, let alone the power of these beings. We, we sang the song Victorious, the, the Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I appreciate that song very much because it, it makes us take seriously the strength of our opponent. It makes us remember things that are clearly taught in the Bible of their strength. It, we sang stuff earlier that said things like this. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate. Did you remember saying this? On earth is not his equal. Like we left ourselves are not as strong as our spiritual opponent. They can do supernatural things that when allowed by God that we cannot do. And we do ourselves a disservice when we underestimate Satan. When we underestimate the power of our enemies. And Satan would point us to his power at times to intimidate us, to scare us. To say, Who do you think you are? Like little old person who's alive on this planet for like 70 years in some small town in Indiana. Like who do you think you are? I have been around like since probably before the world was even created. I have thousands of years of spiritual warfare experience. I can do supernatural things. I have demons at my disposal to, to commission as I see fit. And we can be terrified when we stop and think about that. And in some ways, if we didn't have Christ, we ought to be terrified. Because he has the keys of death. Like he is the one who tempted Adam in the beginning and has led every other person into sin and disobedience. And he can point us to our weakness to scare us. To, to point us how small we are and unable to save souls. Unable to conquer sin in our own lives. He can point to scare us to our sin. He can accuse you and point to the sin in your life and say, God hates that. You remember that? God hates that thing that you did or that you continue to do. And he can accuse and he can scare us and say, hell awaits people who do that. And he's right. And he, he can make us fear and be in terror of him. And he can tempt us to forget that we have far more than a Nehemiah. We have far more than a King Artaxerxes. We have a Savior, Jesus, who stands up for us and fights for us. We sang also in that song, we said, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And so the, that song has reminded us we're not just in a battle against Satan and his, his minions, like mano y mano or group versus group. We have a man on our side who has already won the battle. And he says, Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus it is he. And he, he talks about that song about the strength that we can have in Christ, the courage that we can have in Christ, because he already came and laid down his life for us. Like Nehemiah could have pointed these people maybe to a piece of paper to say, that king way over there that you've never met, maybe you've heard of him, he supports us and he's powerful. Like, trust me on this. And he could have tried to give them courage that way. But we have way more than just a piece of paper and some distant king to give us courage in our fight, don't we? We have the cross. We have the cross to look at to show that God is for us in spite of our sin, in spite of our weakness. God is for us and he's shown us our love by sending Christ to suffer in our place. And we have an empty tomb to remind us that he's alive and well fighting for us. And he's not just on a throne in heaven far away like King Artaxerxes was in a on a throne over in Susa. He is on the throne of heaven, but by his spirit, he is among us as we fight Satan. As we seek to advance the gospel, he's among us. We sang earlier in that same song, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, for uh, his rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. And what we sang and what, what we need to remember today is that the doom of Satan is sure. Our opponent who seems so strong and intimidating to us is on a leash. And he has been, has the head, he's a serpent, talk about the violence, had his head bruised and even crushed by by Christ himself, as he suffered the death, the ultimate sting that Satan has, the ultimate weapon that he has against humans, Christ suffered it, and he conquered it. And he is stronger than him, and he empowers us to 
fight. And so we are to not be scared of him, to not be scared of the opposition that comes against us. His favor, his love has been proven to us. And the last point I want us to see, I'll read this text and make this brief, is that we, we saw that we're not be surprised, we're not be sidetracked from the work that God called us to, and we're to not be scared by our spiritual opponents. But the one thing I would say positively that we are to do is to be smart in our opposite and how we oppose Satan, how we work to advance the kingdom of Christ into darkness. And we see Nehemiah seeking to lead his people in smart ways and strategic ways as they face opposition. So follow along with me to the end of the chapter. He records this. He says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn, until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. There's this wonderful strategy and smarts about how they are facing their opponent here, isn't there? Their enemies, it seems like they've seen them assemble there behind the wall and they, they hear that they know their plans and that, that they're organizing and so they lay off. And I love how God's people then go back to the wall. They go back to the work. The very thing that's ticking those people off, the very thing that is making them oppose them, they go right back to it. They know the work that they're called to do. But then they're, they're smart about it. They, they share the workload, right? And they, half of them are working while half of them stand there and watch and holding armor and, and weapons. And even as they are, are building the wall, uh, they have swords at their side. I can't even imagine. I don't like doing work like that anyways, let alone like carrying swords and trying to think about my opponent coming while I'm building. But that's what they did because they knew they needed to, that they needed to build the wall, but they needed to be ready for opposition. There's a famous magazine that Charles Spurgeon started called The Sword and the Trowel. It's like this image of having hand-in-hand like a trowel to lay bricks, but a sword to fight enemies. And we, we see that they're smart about how they work. They, they, they knew these enemies could come, but they knew that there was work to do. And they even prepared for large-scale attacks, didn't they? Like they, they even got, they were smart enough to imagine there might be attacks on that part of the wall or that part of the wall. And so they have a man with a trumpet who could blow it and that the people knew in advance that they could rally to that point. And I love how Nehemiah says that that man would be right next to him. It shows that their leader was ready to fight with them. It shows that he was ready to, to assemble people around him and fight with them against the enemy. We see that they're smart and that they extend the work days. Uh, They allow people to even come and sleep in Jerusalem so they can get up earlier to work and stay up later to work to try to get the work done in a a uh, time-efficient way. And so, and then it ends by Nehemiah saying, I didn't even change my clothes. Like, I'm the leader of all these people, but I'm there with them hour by hour by hour. I am doing exactly what I call them to do. That's smart leadership in the face of opposition. So they prayed, but they were wise too. They were smart. They, they had strategy in what they were doing. I was also thinking this week with the July 4th, I, I like to read the Declaration of Independence around that time just to remember what it even says, which is good for us as citizens. But at the very end of the Declaration of Independence, I noticed this line this time that, that holds in hand the, the providence of God, but the need to be smart and to work and to, to strategize together. It ends... His men wrote this, and you can think various things about the, the depth of their Christian faith, but they, say, they did say this. They said, 
for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And so that they entrusted that, that the Lord would oversee what was going to take place with this fledgling nation. But they knew if it was going to succeed, we had to do work. And we had to be smart and band together and pool our resources. And the same is true for us. We need to be smart about how we oppose the enemy's work, how we advance into his territories. We need to know his tactics against us. We're told in the New Testament that he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We need to be prepared for his tactics. Know that he is going to accuse you at times. He's going to plant seeds of doubt in your head or make you feel scared of him. We need to know truth from God's word to be able to combat him, to have a sword ready to fight. It's called The Bible is called the sword of the spirit for a reason. Like We can combat the enemy and his lies with truth. We need to be people of prayer, to pray against opposition, to pray against strongholds that are in people's lives and temptations that we face. But then we need to set a guard. They prayed and set a guard. We need to pray and then set a guard. If you know weak spots in your life, you, it would behoove you to set a guard there, to try to think of what are ways, if I struggle with my speech, what's a way I can have someone to help me accountable with that? If I struggle with lust, what's a way that I can address that and seek to cut temptations out of my life and to change my heart? If I struggle with worry, what are things that I can put into my mind and things that I can remember to combat that? And we need to be people who know the importance of community in this fight. Did you notice this? That they were dependent upon one another in their fight against spiritual opposition. None of them was just walking outside Jerusalem like, bring it on, like I'll fight whoever. Like they, they needed each other. They would work and they would guard. And they, they, they knew they needed one another to be protected. And the same is true for us. We need one another in our life groups, in our families, in our, our church as a whole. We need one another. What we get to do Sunday by Sunday is kind of like this sounding of the horn and gathering together and remembering that we have a God who will fight for us. Sunday by Sunday, it's like we're blowing the horn to gather together, and then we go back to our work. We go back to the work of making disciples in our community and around the world. And so we are to trust the Lord in our fight against spiritual opponents, but we're to keep our powder dry, too. We're to know his tactics. We're to be ready for it. And we're to keep working hard to advance the kingdom of Christ. I'm going to pray.